Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. My name is Jeremy Lightning. I'm here with Pastor Michael Zarling. And uh, actually today we're going to cover that little uh, intro line that I like to use. It's from the Beatitudes. Uh, Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness and hunger for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Uh, We're going to look at today Matthew chapters 1 through 5. And uh, it's going to be a, sort of a brief overview because as we were talking just before we started recording, there is a lot uh, to talk about in Matthew. And it really has to do with the fact that Matthew was a record keeper. That was his profession. Uh, he was a tax collector. And uh, so he was good with books and he had numbers on the brain uh, and he, he could attach uh, faces and people to their occupations. And he was kind of detail oriented like that. So there's a lot of details. And it starts that way right off the bat with uh, the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, before we get to that, uh, I like that what you said about him being detail oriented as a tax collector. I never thought of it that way. Uh, in that we do know that this gospel is for everyone, like all the gospels, but each of the gospel writers has a different audience. We've already studied Mark, and Mark is really Luke is really uh, Peter's gospel, and it's written probably for a more Gentile audience. Luke is definitely a Gentile audience in that uh, he's writing to his friend Theophilus, who is a Greek. Uh, John is writing after everyone else, and he's writing to an audience uh, that has been infected with the the Gnosticism of the wisdom thinking. But Matthew is probably the first one who writes, and he's writing to everyone but mainly Jews. And you can tell that in the way he he alludes to uh, or even outright quotes so many Old Testament scriptures more than all of the others. There's at least 60 prophecies. Uh, he also does not find it necessary to uh, to explain Jewish customs. He understands that you know, the Jewish people to whom he's writing is going to understand what he's talking about. Uh, Matthew 15, he also states that Jesus was sent the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then he begins with the genealogy of Abraham, like you mentioned. Uh, The one thing that I like thinking about when uh, you go through chapter one of Matthew is uh, something I heard one time from uh, somebody who I forget if it was a sermon or a Bible study series, but he said that um, Matthew chapter one verses one through 17 uh, could really be titled the skeletons in Jesus closet. (laughs) Uh, Just because there it's a genealogy and it, that's really nice because it shows you how human Christ was and is um but also there are all these little details thrown in that uh, basically it's almost like Matthew you didn't really need to throw that in there it's kind of just reminding people of some uh some sordid history in in the old testament uh, the not so uh, righteous heroes uh, from from the Old Testament times, and I guess just right off the bat, uh, one that I could point out was uh, verse three. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. He he could have just said Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, but uh, he's he reminds us uh, the mother was Tamar, who was a a woman that one of I think it was Judah's sons was supposed to marry, and. Uh, 
ended up not being able to marry any of his sons and have children. Uh, and so she ended up uh, dressing up like a prostitute and seducing her should have been father-in-law so that uh, he ended up unwittingly producing a child with her and then later uh, didn't even uh, pay the bill on the uh, prostitute uh, the prostitute services. Yeah, and then with that theme, the same thing with verse 6. Uh, David's the father of Solomon, whose wife had been, or whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, Matthew, you could have left that out. You yeah. could have just said. Yeah, because, you know, David and Bathsheba were married at the time when they have Solomon, but he says, yeah, the wife of Uriah. Yeah, so he's throwing all of these uh, people in there. And well, why do you think that is? Well, I was um, actually just in the last class period that I had today, uh, giving my students opportunity to ask random questions about anything in the world that they wanted. And one of them asked, uh, have you ever gone through a time in your life when you uh, didn't, or you were, you were tempted not to believe in God, or you, you felt like not believing in God? And, and I was like, I don't think I've ever been at a point where I, I said to myself, I wonder if maybe there, there is no such thing as God, but certainly I've been at points where I felt like, I don't think I'm sure I'm going to hell or I, I don't think God is actually in favor of me, just with those low, dark moments. And that's how I see, including the skeletons in Jesus' closet, so to speak, that uh, to, to show us it's not the bright shining heroes of, of uh, righteousness that are the ones that were in Jesus' timeline. They were sinners and we can relate to them. And what's interesting is verse 17. So altogether, there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to Christ. So that's pretty amazing, isn't it, Jeremy, that there's exactly 14 generations three times over, right? Uh, That would be pretty amazing. Except? Matthew is probably having to kind of you know, swallow hard with what the Holy Spirit inspired him to do, because he probably, if I was Matthew, I would want to include all of the details of every uh, father and grandfather and grandson, whereas some of these are uh, grandfathers and maybe skip a generation just to get that number 14. Yeah. And so the idea, though, is exactly that. It's not a, a specific genealogy. He does skip some people, but why does he do it this way? He's showing that Jesus is the legal heir of David's throne and David comes from Abraham. And what's one of the things too, is we're going to get to this in the next few verses is Matthew's gospel is showing the genealogy of Jesus through Joseph, through the foster father. Luke's gospel, we all, you know, we've all memorized and our kids memorize Luke chapter two. Luke's gospel is showing the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. Matthew doesn't bother. I mean, Mark doesn't bother with the genealogy of Jesus, but I've preached on this a lot of times because the gospel lesson for Christmas is John's gospel, John chapter one. John chapter one is the genealogy of Jesus from God, the father. Oh, that's, that's a neat way to think of it. Yeah. Um, 
if uh, if there aren't any more details in the genealogy that we want to talk about, then uh, the next thing would be a story that is less familiar. It's still pretty familiar, but uh, not as familiar as the shepherds and the uh, census from Caesar Augustus in Luke chapter two. Uh, but this is uh, the way that God announced the Savior's birth to the adopted father, to Joseph, in uh, the second half of Matthew chapter 1. Do you want to talk about the betrothal at all? We kind of talked about this at the end of our Revelation study. Uh, just that they were, we, we shouldn't think of being engaged as uh, the exact same thing as the betrothal process in uh, ancient Judaism. Right. So if I was engaged to my wife for nine months, you know, we dated for nine months, engaged for nine months, and then we had our wedding for, in, in the Jewish custom, they were engaged. That was their legal marriage, you know, kind of signing the papers, but they didn't move in together. They didn't have the party and all of that until whenever that other date was. And so they're legally married in the eyes of God and the eyes of the Jewish people, but they haven't yet consummated the marriage with the party and then sleeping together. And that's the big point that the Holy Spirit's making here is this is not Joseph's son. This is the son of the Holy Spirit. That is just to put it a little more pointedly. In other words, think of it that you get married uh, and then you they, they would go out of their way not to have relations with your spouse for uh, another, what did you say, nine months? No, no. My wife and I, we were engaged for nine months. I don't know what the Jewish custom would have been. Well, however long it was, yeah. just it was, it was quite a while. And just imagine you are legally married, but we're, we're going to actually hold off even more. I think it was nine months because oh. I, I think it, it was designed that way to make sure that this was not a shotgun wedding. Oh, see, we're, look at all the stuff we're learning from each other today. That's that's why we do a, a, a duo podcast. Yeah, uh, verse 18 is so important here. She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And, what, and then verse 20, what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So twice in close succession for emphasis sake, Matthew points out that Jesus was not conceived through the union of man and woman, but rather that God, the Holy Spirit, was the cause of Mary's pregnancy. And I bring that up here because, uh, because we're a confessional church. And part of being a confessional church is that means we confess our faith every Sunday. And we say this every Sunday with our universal creeds, uh, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became fully human. And then on Trinity Sunday, Athanasian Creed, he is God, eternally begotten from the nature of the Father, and he is man, born in time from the nature of his mother, fully God, fully man with rational soul and human flesh, equal to the father as to his deity, less than the father as to his humanity. One of the things that uh, strikes me in this account of Joseph receiving the vision from the angel about Jesus' birth is, is what came before it, that uh, it, it was not just 
automatically understood that, uh, you know, he could imagine Joseph having conversations with Mary or maybe some delegate of her household that was uh, sending the news to him that uh, she is she is pregnant. And it's not like automatically Joseph is zapped with this knowledge. Oh, well, this must be from God. Uh, oh, it, I, I, of course, this is this is God's doing. It actually did need to be revealed to him uh, in a vision. He was going about it in a very orderly and uh, righteous kind of way. But um, it, I, I, th- I often talk this way about Jesus, that people saw him, but it's not like he had this glowing halo that just automatically would have made everybody understand right away, this is God. Well, the same thing is true with the pregnancy of Jesus. Uh, it did not immediately... Uh, it, it, Joseph needed to have it revealed to him that uh, that this was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And last month, I think it was, we cele- celebrated, you preached here on the Festival of St. Mary. And I like the way you introduced it and you said that, uh, you know, we're not worshiping Mary, we're honoring Mary, and you equated it to Mother's Day, the same way we do with Mother's Day and, and I think that's a good way of the festival of St. Joseph is set for March 19th. And Joseph, I think, is a good way of celebrating Father's Day. You know, for the f- few times that we might celebrate the festival of St. Joseph, it's really the same theme. It's that he, uh, he was a good, upstanding man trying to divorce his wife quietly, not making a big deal out of it. And then he listens to the Holy Spirit or listens to the angel and he marries her, and uh, but has no relation with her. Uh, and then when the angel later on comes and says in chapter two, "Get out of here," he protects he protects his wife and his son, and then they leave. And so he's always listening to God. He's a a father and a protector and a husband. That's what we look for on Father's Day. So he's a, he's a good example for us as dads and husbands. Absolutely. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 brings us into a little more familiar Christmas narrative, Uh, uh, not Luke 2, but uh, the visit of the Magi or the wise men. Um, This is, of course, uh, special for a lot of uh, members of Water of Life because we uh, recently were called Epiphany, and that's what is celebrated in this chapter, Epiphany. But uh, no matter what the name of our church is, like uh, Pastor Prangy said back in uh, the last Epiphany service that we had, no matter what the name of our church is, we can still celebrate it and uh, thank God that he shed his light of salvation, not only on the chosen Jewish people, but also on the Gentile Magi. Yeah, and it was tough for our people to give up the name Epiphany because we're the, we were the only Epiphany in the Wisconsin Synod. Uh, but now we're Water of Life, and there's only two Water of Lifes in the wells. So I got a couple of questions for you, Jeremy. First, do you know what tradition says are the names of the three wise men? Yes, yes. Uh, okay, I, I think now I, I got to credit, credit uh, I think it's Kevin Hunley. Uh, in a sermon one time mentioned this and, and it's, I think at the very least, am I getting this right? Their initials are C, M, and E. No. Oh, uh, is one, one of them is Melchior. Melchior, Gaspar, and, and Cas- Gaspar and Be- CMB. Yeah, GMB. It's not Casper, that's a ghost. Gaspar. Really? I think so. At least that's what I have written down. Okay. But it could be 
different translations. And one of the things that's interesting with the three men, we don't know what their names were, but they're often pictured as three different nationalities of, uh, you know, a darker skin, like a black skin and a tan skin and a lighter skin, because the wise men are been pictured as uh, Gentile Christmas. You know, the Jews, you know, it's a Jewish Christmas on December 25th. And then we celebrate the Gentile Christmas on January 6th. And when your church is named Epiphany, you have an Epiphany festival on January 6th. And so I've preached for that festival. And one of the sermons I remember preaching, I use for the theme is the, the song. We still sing it on and listen to it on the radio. We three kings of Orient are. And I explained throughout the sermon, you know, the title, we three kings of Orient are. We don't know that there are three kings. It's just mm-hmm. three gifts. So cross out, and I had it written in the bulletin. I said, cross out the word three. And then Orient. Well, they're not really from the Orient. They're Arabic. So cross out Orient. They're from the East, but that not that far East. And then uh, kings. They weren't really kings. They were magi. Uh, that they were astronomers and astrologers. So we three kings of Orient are, I said, one of the only words that are left is we are. You know, we are the wise men. We are the magi. This is our festival. And let's celebrate him. Hmm. Uh, so uh, yeah. Neat little exercise. Yeah. Um, the, uh, again, you've, you've probably preached enough sermons on this and, and celebrated Epiphany enough that I should really defer to you with, with this. I, I don't know if I have much more to say on the first half of chapter two. Uh, well, you've got Herod the Great, and I was doing some study on this too. There are a lot of Herods in the Bible too. So it's just hard to keep the Herod straight. So this guy is Herod the Great. He's the one that slaughters the baby boys. And then later on, when they come back after Herod the Great dies, uh, Joseph learns that his son, Herod Archelaus, has taken over. Later on, you've got another son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas. He's the one who later, uh, about 30 years later, beheads John the Baptizer. Uh, He's the one to whom Jesus is sent during the trial with Pontius Pilate. You've got Herod Agrippa I. That's Herod the Great's grandson. He persecuted the Christian church and uh, martyred James, the brother of John. And then you've got Herod Agrippa II, who is instrumental in keeping Paul out of prison in Jerusalem. And he's the last of the Herods. So lots of Herods, and they're hard to keep track of. But this one is uh, the the most notable, and that's why he's called the Great, Herod the Great. And uh, it, it is probably good to keep that in mind when you're reading Matthew's gospel, that the people who at that time knew of Herod the Great and, and lived under his rule, um, he, they didn't totally think he was such an awful villain. Uh, obviously, he is with what he commanded for the boy babies of Bethlehem. But um, th- that, first of all, was not uncommon for him to command brutal things like uh, murdering even even his own relatives for the purposes of palace. And even the woman he loved, he had put to one of his uh, wives was put to death. Uh, and he regretted that terribly later. Uh, but a lot of people also liked him simply because he was such a prolific builder. Um, he built lots of castles and palaces and uh, uh, roads. And uh, he was 
they didn't want to call it Herod's temple, but it basically was Herod's temple when they uh, remodeled Zerubbabel's temple. And it was basically building Zerubbabel's temple from, from new and, uh, and aqueducts and all the rest of it. It's kind of like politicians today. There's a lot of people that really think this guy is great. And then a lot of them that think he's the devil incarnate. So anything else you want to talk about with the wise men, uh, with them coming and so forth? And then Herod. Just, just that, it, and Martin Luther makes this point quite often, that uh, it's kind of sad how the non-Jewish, the non-churchy religious uh, wise men were the ones who were most interested in the Savior being born. And you had priests and even King Herod himself who knew a thing or two about God's word, and yet uh, they couldn't be bothered to go find out what exactly uh, the Messiah is all about. Instead, it's a, a jealousy game with King Herod. And then as we talked about minor festivals with St. Mary and St. Joseph, there's also a minor festival, uh, December 28th, that's the Holy Innocents. Mm. Uh, the martyrs, the and that's where we remember Herod slaughtering all of these children that were two years uh, and and under. Uh, and then you can see God's hand in this, in that now when Herod Agrippa, uh, no, Her- Her- see, I get confused. Herod Archelaus uh, is is next up and Joseph learns that Herod Archelaus is taking over the throne of Herod the Great. Now he comes back, but he doesn't go to Bethlehem. Uh, he doesn't go to Bethlehem. Uh, he goes to Nazareth in Galilee and that fulfills a prophecy that Jesus is going to be in the north of uh, Galilee where the Gentiles mainly lived. Yeah, and uh, that is a, a section that I'd like to talk more about uh, the fulfillment of these prophecies. Uh, I just wanted to point out that something kind of neat. Uh, Christmas Day is December twenty fifth. Now the three days following Christmas are all Saints' Days and uh, or, or some kind of a minor festival, and it goes twenty six, twenty seven, twenty eight. The twenty eighth of December is uh, in memory of the babies who were slaughtered. Uh, and what you say about them is, uh, and then, uh, so I'm sorry, 20, 28th is Holy Innocence, 27th is uh, John, the apostle and evangelist, the gospel writer, the disciple Jesus loved, and then 26th is St. Stephen. And I heard a neat little uh, sort of memory hook for those days that if you start with the, the 28th, the Holy Innocence, the little baby boys were martyrs uh, it, in reality, but not willingly. Uh, St. John was a martyr willingly, but not in reality. And then uh, the 26th, uh, St. Stephen was a martyr, both willingly and in reality. There you go. I like it. Anything else you want to bring up on chapter two? Oh, just uh, that there was uh, that, where is that? The Oh, he will be called a Nazarene mm-hmm. uh, is kind of a tricky thing because there's no Bible passage in the Old Testament where it says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Uh, I think the easiest way to explain this is um, by saying people are going to call. It's not, it's not, Matthew wasn't intending it to be a quote from an Old Testament passage. Uh, it, it was simply that people are going to call the Messiah uh, a, a low life or a, a 
hick or a hillbilly from the backwoods town of Nazareth. And that is something that you get, not in exact words, but certainly in the spirit of a lot of Old Testament passages. All right. Well, let's go on to chapter three, then, if you want to introduce that. Chapter three uh, brings us to uh, the person of John the baptizer. Uh, And I'm going to use, I, I try to spice it up or change it a little bit. Sometimes I'll say John the baptizer. Sometimes I'll say John the Baptist because the New Testament uses both of those terms. Uh, but uh, we we talked, I'm sure, about John when we went through Mark's gospel. Uh, we, we've mentioned him. Well, actually, you have told me, uh, you've advised me as, as my pastor that uh, you think my ministry at Shoreland should be kind of a John the baptizer uh, ministry. That's good that you remember that because that's what I have written down in my notes too. And to help you out with this, just to let your family who listens, whether it's your wife or your parents and so forth, maybe they can all chip in on this to help you out is you can get an actual camel's hair coat, suit coat by Dockers for $100 and it looks decent Uh, and doesn't look like, you know, we think camel's hair. Do do you know what else you can get? You can get... uh, Power protein bars made from from locusts from from crickets or I, I forget if it's grasshoppers or crickets or locusts. But you are all set for the ministry. At I'd say so. The other thing is, uh, I had a very uh, dear dear uh, teacher that passed away about a year ago, and we finally got to celebrate his uh, his his memorial this past Tuesday. And uh, one of the things that somebody snagged for me from from his house when they were kind of uh, dispersing his earthly belongings was a little triptych, one of those things that has a a painting in the middle with two side panels that you can fold shut or open. And uh, guess who's in the middle of the triptych? John the Baptist? Yes, John the Baptist, yeah. And so now I put it in my classroom and his eyes are looking upward. And so I actually put it in my classroom on a wall in a corner so that his eyes can be looking upward at my picture that I already had in there of Christ. All right, so now we got to go back to the second chapter because you're talking about the triptych reminded me of this. Uh, we had a visitor today at church, and so I was showing him our, our church, and I like showing off the stained glass window of Jesus, the good shepherd, but we also have two side panels that look like stained glass windows, but they're actually paintings. It's the same artist that did our paintings that did the paintings at uh, other a few other churches like Faith in Antioch or Martin Luther College, the Chapel of the Christ there. But she painted them to look like stained glass windows. And the very first set that we had was of the wise men, two of them, because we made sure that we didn't want to put three, and they're coming to Bethlehem. On the other side uh, to, is Jesus' baptism. John is standing behind Jesus, and they're both up to their knees in the water, pouring water with a shell over his head. And then you have the triptych. So you have Jesus as a good shepherd in the middle, two side panels. But here's another question for you. Uh, this is in a lot of hymns, and we have some of these hymns or hymns. What are the three epiphanies that we celebrate at the Epiphany Festival? I gave you two of them. The Magi, Jesus' baptism, and there's a third epiphany, third revealing. Is it uh, the, is it Judgment Day? It is. Is it his, Transfiguration? No, it's his 
first miracle, the wedding at Cana. Oh. Uh, I, I don't have time to look it up in the hymnal, but uh, some of our hymns, they have that. And you celebrate it on Epiphany Festival, all three epiphanies, Magi, the, the he, baptism. He, this way he revealed miracle. his glory. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, and and what you mentioned with the paintings is a great lead-in to the last part of this chapter, uh, Jesus' baptism. Um, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, and uh, you can, again, sort of see the, the humanness of Christ and the, the humanness of the people surrounding him. Uh, John didn't get the memo. He, he didn't plan with Jesus ahead of time. Okay, we're going to put on this show. You're going to come and get baptized and the heavens are going to open up. No, it came as a surprise to John. And John is sort of awkwardly trying to say, oh, what, what's going on here? I, I thought I need to be baptized by you. Uh, I always like to point out uh, something that I learned when I was studying this from other great interpreters of scripture. You, you need to put side by side the, in verse 14... I need to be baptized. The word need alongside of uh, Jesus' word in verse 15, proper. It is proper. Jesus doesn't talk about what is needed. Uh, he, yes, it, it is needed that John has his sins forgiven. But uh, what is fitting right now or what is proper right now is for John to baptize him. Um, and, and I also like to always point to this when you think of people who don't believe in the saving power of baptism. What kind of sense does it make for John to say, Jesus, uh, I need to have a, a, a profession of my faith made to tell everybody that I'm a Christian now to you, and you come to make a profession of your faith to tell everybody that you're a Christian now to me? It, it's, uh, it doesn't make as much sense if, if baptism is not a saving thing, if it's just an outward act that you use to profess your faith, then John's protesting here doesn't really make as much sense. Yeah. And with that, you know, did Jesus have to be baptized for the same reason we have to be baptized? No. Jesus was baptized as our substitute. It was God's will that all people submit to baptism. But Jesus came to fulfill God's will or his righteousness. So then he submitted to John's baptism. So this is part of Jesus' work of obeying God's law in our place. That means that already in the waters of baptism, Jesus is beginning to fulfill his role as Christ, as the Messiah, as the anointed one. He's anointed with water and the Holy Spirit to carry out his role as prophet, priest, and king. He's taking on himself already the dirty sins of humanity in the dirty waters of the Jordan River. Exactly. Uh, I often, I I like the picture of um, Jesus is the detergent that by getting into the water with us, he without without him getting baptized, our baptisms don't wash anything away. Uh, but since he was baptized, that fulfills all righteousness, and uh, and and he joined us in the water to take on the sin that were, was washed off of us in the water. And then you also have in this account uh, the doctrine of the Trinity: that all three persons of the Triune Godhead are present. All three are acting in concert. That just as all three were present and involved at the beginning of the universe, now all three persons of the Trinity are involved at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. That at creation, the Father was speaking, the Son was the Word being spoken, and the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters. And now at Jesus' baptism, the Father was speaking, 
The sudden made flesh is standing in the waters and the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters, descending upon the son who was standing in the waters. Chapter four shows us that uh, what happens when you get baptized? Well, then uh, you go out and do battle with Satan. That's something that we all do, uh, but it's also true of Jesus. Uh, He was strengthened by his baptism to go out and withstand the temptation of the devil. Uh, Only he did it. He did the withstanding temptation perfectly to make up for uh, all the times that we lost the battle to the devil. Uh, I like to sum up the three temptations uh, in this way. Um, Basically, the temptation to turn stone into bread is pretty much anything you can think of that uh, is that you've ever been tempted with uh, dealing with uh, your body or your your desires or physical needs for yourself. Um, that's all summed up in the temptation to turn something into bread. Um, uh, when it comes to uh, jumping off the temple, uh, that, that kind of is a temptation to misinterpret scripture, to, to believe in a false religion, uh, a, a God who has not revealed himself to say the things that uh, are uh, purported to be said. Um, Jesus, Jesus was basically, the devil was telling Jesus, go ahead and uh, trust in God, even for things that he hasn't promised. Um, and then, uh, and then the last one is kind of uh, the easy way out. Uh, Jesus, if you bow down to me, you don't even have to mean it. Uh, you, nobody has to see you do it. So you're not even setting a bad example. But uh, if you just bow down to me, I'll leave all of the people on earth in your hands. You don't have to die and suffer to get them. Uh, you, you can just uh, worship me to get them. Yeah. And, you know, Verse one there, Jesus was led by the spirit. Other translations have it. He was driven out by the spirit. You know, I, I think that's a stronger uh, verb too. driven out. The Holy Spirit drives him out. Uh, John writes in first John three, verse eight, this is why the son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So here you have true God and true man in one person, and Jesus' mission is overcoming the devil's temptations and remaining sinless while he does it. And so, still dripping wet from the water of baptism, he goes off to do devil, uh, do battle against the devil of the king of creation versus the prince of this world. Uh, that third temptation that you mentioned, too, that's the one that... I got caught up on when I was a kid and I was always thinking, why would he bow down to the devil? Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it, it didn't hit me probably until I was in the ministry that, like you said, the devil's giving him the easy way out. If you do this, you don't have to go to the cross. You know, and we know Jesus in Gethsemane, that was tough. He's mm-hmm. still praying for it just hours before that. Uh, and something else I was working on as I was studying this, and I'm always, anything I listen to, anything I read, uh, I'm always taking notes for the book that I'm writing. And uh, one of the things that struck me was the testing here. Uh, Jesus says, don't, uh, you shall not test the Lord your God. And you've probably heard people say that, you know, it can be one side or the other with masks. Mm-hmm. and vaccines and things like that. You know, you do this or you're testing God. Don't do this or you're testing God. And in my study, then I, I focused on 
Malachi 3, verse 10, where God says, test me yeah, yeah. in this. You know, bring your tithes, but test me and trust. And you know, sometimes we say, don't test God because you're, you're tempting him and you're not trusting him enough. But there are times that God wants us to test him. Mm-hmm. And I wrote some things on that. I won't go into it here, but I shared it on Facebook. And another, uh, someone else who read that commented about the pilgrims. You know, were they sinning? By leaving Europe and coming here across the seas, there was no promise that what they were going to get here was going to be good. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, was it, so it was a sinful testing. And he didn't provide the quotes. He has to do that yet. And I want to use those possibly for my book. But from the gist of what he was saying is they had a trust and a test in the Lord that he would provide. They came, if they would come over here with their people and their families and whatever else they had, they just trusted that God would provide. And in that way, I think that's a good testing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last parts of chapter four are uh, kind of more about the teaching of Jesus and then the message that he proclaimed than actual like storytelling or narrative. Uh, so I just thought, first of all, that I would point out in verse 17, this is the verse that uh, Martin Luther had in mind when he wrote the first of his 95 theses. Uh, he, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that the whole life of a Christian should be a constant act of repenting. And uh, the reference that he had in mind, that Luther had in mind when he wrote that was verse 17, Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. And then going back to verse 15, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali along the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And then the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light on those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death, a light has dawned. So this is already the seventh prophecy that Matthew brings up already in the fourth chapter. And Isaiah is foretelling that Jesus would preach in the northern parts of Canaan. And that's a pretty unique prophecy in that when he's giving this, the Jewish people had lost that land to the Assyrians. And then later, after Isaiah's time, during a period of independence, the, Gentiles, I mean, the Jews had reconquered it. And now many Jews are settling in the land of the Gentiles. And so it's Galilee of the Gentiles. And so it's interesting that Jesus is doing his ministry in the north, in Galilee, away from Judah, away for, from the religious center with the, the Sanhedrin of Pharisees and Sadducees. So, Jeremy, why do you think it's important that Jesus conducts the majority of his ministry in the north, away from Jerusalem and Judah? It's probably so that uh, the timing of his death would be uh, correct, and and also so that uh, he could, he was he was called to uh, minister to the lost sheep of Israel, and uh, that a lot of them would have been up in those regions. Yeah, but it, the first part is exactly right, and that's what I was going to focus on. Not that your second part wasn't right too, but just that, uh, yeah, if he is there right in the face of the religious leaders. They're going to come after him sooner and harder. Uh, and that's why in, a lot of times, uh, well, like later on uh, with Lazarus' death, Jesus says, well, let's go back. Uh, let's go back to Bethany right outside of Jerusalem. And the disciples are afraid. You know, Thomas says, we're, we're, we're going to go with him to die with him. 
But then Jesus knew that was the right time because shortly after he resurrects Lazarus from the dead, now he's going to be put to death and then rise from the dead. So don't don't miss uh, verse 15 and 16. I think a lot of times I've done this, we focus on, especially Epiphany. Epiphany is um, revealing the light to the Gentiles. But verse 15 is so important it's a prophecy that Jesus is preaching in Galilee of the Gentiles. And there's a good reason for that. It, it's, it's also probably related to the fact that uh, God always chooses the lowly things and the uh, weak things and the foolish things of this world to do his greatest work. And so uh, it, it only makes sense in God's economy to start in a, a dumpy little place like uh, the, the North, you know, parts of the Northern Territories of Israel. Uh, the first congregation that I served was a St. Matthew in Benton Harbor. And uh, I, I always thought that uh, this was kind of a pivotal verse for the work of that congregation. Verse 19, uh, he said to uh, James and John, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Um, Actually, I think it's later on that we get Matthew's calling. Matthew's in the tax collector booth, and and Jesus said to him, follow me. Maybe that's more the verse I'm thinking of, but this one is along those same lines. And then uh, the only other thing I'd say about chapter 4 is simply that um, I, I like verse 24. Uh, it's depicted, if, if you're aware, have we, have we talked much about The Chosen, the, the TV? Or Not the, at all. The streaming series? Really? Okay. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's an episode in season two called Matthew. The name of the episode is Matthew four, verse 24. And the whole episode, you actually don't see Jesus at all. Uh, it, it, the Chosen is a, a series about the ministry of Christ, and you don't see Jesus at all throughout the episode. It's just the disciples and the, the women that followed him all having campfire conversations throughout the day while Jesus is busy the whole day just healing people over and over. It's a constant stream of people getting healed. And uh, he, and at the end of the day, he, he just, all you see of that, of him in that episode is he walks to his tent and takes off his shoes and washes his feet and lies down and goes right to sleep because he's just exhausted from healing all these people all day. But uh, the other thing I like about that verse is um, they could tell even long ago, there is a difference between having a seizure and being demon possessed. And a lot of times people like to say when they want to trash the Bible, uh, oh, those people long ago, they didn't know any better about science and modern things. So uh, they just said that, uh, you know, demons are uh, convulsing someone who's actually just having a seizure or uh, somebody's hallucinating and they think that they're seeing an angel. No, they knew the difference between hallucinations and uh, visions and and the difference between seizures and demon possession. It's right there yeah. in verse 24. And the last thing I wanted to focus on is Jesus calling them to be fishers of men. Uh, so instead of using a net to catch fish, they're going to be using the gospel and word and sacrament to gather people. And I'll be honest with you is I think fishing is extremely boring. Uh, but Thankfully, I think fishing, I'm guessing there's a lot of enemies you just made. That, hey, that's okay. Uh, but thankfully, fishing for souls is. I mean, a lot, I I, ag I agree with you. Okay, good. But the yeah, but 
uh, fishing for souls is so much more fun. And, and I think of that this week is, and I think, and I'll be honest with you, I getting burned out lately. And I think part of that is just doing a lot of administration and just two things this week that helped re-energize me with mission work is, uh, I was down yesterday, uh, down in the Indianapolis, Indiana area, working on doing some studying on establishing a brand new congregation. And I was thinking this might be a year and a half out or so, but uh, there's a a couple of people down there in that area that we're going to connect with to have a core group. And we're trying to bring a request in this next year already uh, to go from having no idea four months ago that we wanted to be there to Lord willing by this time next year, having a pastor there and starting up a congregation. That's pretty exciting. And then the other thing was my, one of my daughters calling me this week. Uh, she had watched the Wells connection video and the le- latest video, if you haven't watched it yet, talks about the new Wells initiative starting in 2023 of starting 100 new missions and 75 enhancements over the next 10 years. That's a lot, a lot of work that needs to be done. And my daughter Miriam called me and said, Dad, have you thought about getting back into the mission field? And she said, you know, you used to be a missionary at one time. You had a mission church. I said, I know, Miriam, but I can't just be a missionary. I have to have a call and so forth. And she said, well, can't you just ask for one? So no, that's not the way it works. But just that idea uh, to put me back in place, you know, that's my calling. And that's all of our callings as people and as pastors. Uh, But some of us have more gifts and more talents to do that kind of work because just sitting at a desk and doing administration, that's boring. Doing mission work, that's fun stuff. And and I'll offer you this encouragement that uh, the district I was just in before this, the Nebraska district, uh, every January, we had our, all of our pastors a, a missionary conference. And the tagline of that conference, every time that it was advertised or emailed about, uh, was, uh, you know, every pastor in the Nebraska district is a missionary. Uh, so you, there, there are always uh, lost souls to reach out to, even in your own backyard. Yeah, one of the things that we're trying to do in our mission board here, and I think around the uh, around the Senate is to work with our circuit pastors because each district has a co- has a number of conferences and those conferences have circuits and to go to each of the conferences and circuits and talk to the pastors there and where do you see a mission field? Where is a congregation that's healthy and looking to do an enhancement, something new? And to uh, I think a lot of times churches are shrinking we just talked about this in our Revelation Bible study, congregations and people get lukewarm. Well, how do you fight that? You got to be on fire. You got to be on fire for the Lord, finding new people to share the gospel with. And you get one person and then that fires you up and then you want to do more. And then you've got those people to do it with you. But congregations and Christians and pastors forget about that. Uh, yeah, I can keep going on mission work. So. It's No, it, it's it's a good thing to discuss. Um in chapter 5 of Matthew, uh, we get his Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preaches a Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the intro to his sermon is what we call the Beatitudes. Uh, it's verses 3 through 10, and uh, Beatitudes just means a speaking of a blessing. And so, he speaks a blessing on all these uh, different types of people. And what I 
want you to think about is um, that this is not a checklist of things for you to do. And it's easy to think that way that, oh, I'm supposed to be poor in spirit or I'm supposed to be gentle. And the next thing I have to work on is that I am uh, merciful and so forth or pure in heart. And if you do this, then you'll be blessed. And then people view them as law statements. Yeah, yeah. And 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 certainly they, they could be used that way if somebody is the opposite. And, and I think actually uh, the other gospel that has this recorded in it is Luke, if I'm not mistaken. And Jesus also speaks statements of woe for all of the opposites of these things. Um, so it, it could have a law flavor to it. But really, there's nothing for you to do. It's just receive this blessing. You're you you are poor in spirit. Then you're blessed because you're uh, you're getting to own the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, and and that's exactly it. Is I try and teach it that way too, and that these are gospel statements, uh, not what people should do to become blessed. Rather, these are what God makes you as sanctified saints, and therefore you are blessed. And Jeremy and I were talking about this beforehand. We're going to go real fast through the Sermon on the Mount because uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, there are a lot of gospel lessons here that are broken up throughout the church year, especially in year A. And when you say gospel, what you mean is readings from one of the four biographies of Christ. Uh, Actually, even I was talking about the chosen before, uh, it had... Uh, Jesus getting up early in the morning every day with Matthew to uh, sort of work out his his sermon as he was sort of composing it and then deliver it to the people. It's it's uh, hypothetical. It's not anything that definitely happened, but it's neat to think of. And um, Matthew in the, in the dialogue, Matthew makes the comment to Jesus, "Wow, these are some pretty harsh words," and and Jesus responds. Well, what do you want me to say? Why, you guys are doing a great job down here. Keep up the good work. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Um, and, and my point, though, is that uh, we're going to go through this fast because you're going to hear a lot of these things uh, in, in the pulpit as a pastor takes a section of verses and then explains them. But we're just going to kind of touch on each of these things. I, I can very easily sum up probably the end of this chapter just by saying, uh, maybe think about the Ten Commandments. Because that's really what Jesus is doing is he's expounding on the Ten Commandments, that even if you think you've kept the commandment by not committing the outward act, you uh, still break it by uh, having the thought of committing the outward act. And uh, what's interesting, though, again, with the Ten Commandments thing is he doesn't start with the first one. He actually more or less starts with the fifth, uh, anger and hatred and uh, murder. And, and then he, he moves on to uh, se- uh, sex and the sixth commandment and marriage and, and children and uh, oaths, the second and the eighth commandment. Um, and he kind of works his way out from the middle since God's most important gift that he wants to give to us all is life. And that's what's preserved by the fifth commandment. Yeah. And with all of the, the rest of this chapter, it's really... Jesus saying, this is what you were taught. You know, you heard it was said. Uh, and he says that at least three times. Uh, no, it's, it's a lot. Uh, uh, verse 21 and then verse 27, verse 31, 33, 38, 43. So a number of times he says, you know, you heard it was said. 
And so what he's saying is, this is what you learned. Now think about it more deeply. He's not coming to oppose the law, not coming to oppose what they had heard before, but to give them more nuance, you know, so that you think that it was just, you know, murder and you broke the fifth commandment. No, if you're hating someone, it's murder. If you think, you know, it was heard, it was said that if you commit adultery, you're breaking the sixth commandment. But if you look at a woman lustfully, then you're breaking this commandment. And again, those were things I was writing down. That's all kind of the whole theme of my book of uh, there's nuances in scripture. You know, just because you hear it, like they said before, with testing, well, testing can be sinful, but testing can be uh, sanctified. Uh, and you can look at one thing one way, but scripture also gives you another way of looking at it. But sometimes we, we look at it only the way we learned it as uh, I'll quote Pastor Hundley here too. I was talking about my book with him and he said, yeah, we learned one thing when we were in grade school and we didn't grow out of that. And I said, yeah, that's the whole pur- purpose of what I'm trying to write about is we got to get to the, the college level or the master degree level and study scripture and apply all of it, not just what we learned in grade school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I guess the only thing more I would say is just that uh, a lot of times what Jesus is doing with this wording, the whole, you have heard that it was said, is he he's sort of picking apart the... Uh, the the rab the rabbinic teachings the the Pharisees and the rabbis that would build up uh, barriers around the Ten Commandments. Make sure you don't get so, even so close to the commandment of breaking it that you uh, uh, there, there's another barrier around it, and um, and he's he's going to sort of point out the hypocrisy of that by using some of the. Uh, rabbinic uh, rabbinic phrases like you, uh, it has been said is something that they would have heard their rabbis or the Pharisaic teachers say, and and that's really evident, especially with um, uh, the talk about the Sanhedrin being subject to the Sanhedrin. But if you do this, then you're going to be punished with hell. That's almost a little bit of uh, satire that I think Jesus is using there. Irony, I'm not sure what the right word of it is, but it, he's kind of mocking a little bit the the idea of the rabbinic, the rabbis teaching that, um, uh, well, if you break, if you do this, then that's that's not good, but it's not as bad as this. If you do that, then that's really bad. And, and he's sort of saying, uh, well... Actually, all sins are the same, but I'm going to kind of lampoon it a little bit by saying, uh, if you say empty head, well, then you're going to be uh, excommunicated from the church. But if you say fool, then you're going to hell. Huh. Really, those are the same thing. But it, he's, he's sort of, I think, making a little play on words uh, in contrast to the teachers of the law. Right. And then going back to nuance, going back to 15 I want to, and 16, I want to make a point there uh, actually, 13 through 15, he talks about being salt and light. So nuance in one place of scripture, Jesus says, you know, don't let others see what you're doing. Do it in secret. Don't even let your other hand know, you know, let your left hand know what your right hand is. That's doing. within the sermon. Okay. Yeah. 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 Later on. Yeah. And, but what he says here, you're salt and light. Let everyone see what you're doing. Yeah. So which one is it? Is it's he contradicting himself? It's different things at different times. Yeah. And so what he's saying here is with verses 15 and 16 of being salt and light, we want, not, we want to draw people's attention. And later on, he says, not to yourself. His point here is you're drawing attention to Christ, God, 
uh, Christ's gospel motivates us and we're glorifying God in what we do and we want others to see it. And a good story about that is uh, last week, school officials in Putnam County, Tennessee, told coaches that they were not allowed to lead students in prayer on the football field. So the players led the prayer. And so it's pretty cool. You see these pictures, uh, powerful photos of cheerleaders, players, parents from both teams in circles on the football field, all together praying to God because the coaches were told you can't do this. So then everyone else did it. And the lesson there is don't ever let anyone stand in the way of you publicly living your faith. You be salt and light in the world. Because as uh, people become more oppressive to the Christian faith here in America, and they're saying can't do this and can't do that, well, you still want to obey them, but you let your light shine. And then because they said don't do this, what is that? You know, because the devil wants to shut everything down. God's going to open everything up. Then you find ways to let your light shine and are the light shone brighter with the players doing it than instead of the coaches doing it. So don't ever let anyone shut you down. Just find different ways to let the light shine. Anything else you've got? That's it. All right. So we're going to be staying in Matthew uh, for the rest of September and pretty much all of October. Uh, so, since we're going to stay in Matthew, I figured I'd stick with a theme for your nicknames this month, too. Uh, we're all going to be heroes and vil- villains in the Flash universe. So, this is Pastor Zarling with the fastest man alive, Flash. Stay thirsty, my friends, then drink deeply from the water of life. <laughs>